Hey, I'm Jody Butts. Welcome to At Risk, brought to you by Interact. From the start of the pandemic on the 2020 network, we have tried to highlight and bring attention to the plight of Canada's elders living in long-term care settings. We have spoken with policy experts, as well as with essential family care providers. While the systemic challenges of this sector are new to some, these issues have been decades in the making and have led to Canada having the highest reported proportion of deaths for older adults living in long-term care and retirement homes than any other country worldwide. It's been a little over a year since Canadians first saw the reports of the Canadian Armed Forces who were called in to some of Ontario's and Quebec's long-term care facilities that were battling COVID outbreaks. These reports detail disturbing observations about the conditions of facilities and the treatment of their residents and staff. We know that long-term care and retirement homes are an essential part of Canada's social and health system. But as we have seen, they are in need of substantial improvement and repurposing. On June 3rd, Canada 2020 hosted a conference with the aim of taking a hard look at the lessons learned from this pandemic and the action needed to protect and support Canada's seniors to ensure the next time a crisis hits, we protect lives. To kick the day off, I was thrilled to be in conversation with two of the most respected voices on this topic. Andre Picard is an award-winning health columnist at the Globe and Mail and author of five best-selling books, including his most recent, Neglected No More, The Urgent Need to Improve the Lives of Canada's Elders in the Wake of a Pandemic. Shirley Sharkey is a registered nurse and the long-standing and formidable president and CEO of SE Health, who has been recognized as one of Canada's foremost experts on the future of aging. This is our conversation about how to fix the system once and for all. Thank you for joining me, Andre and Shirley, and welcome to At Risk. Just to, to start things off, and I'll start with, with you, Shirley. We heard Andre talk about, you know, reports and reports and reports. We're so good at reflecting on our mistakes. We're just not amazing at actually correcting them. What, you know, if you, if you were given the reins, what would be your top priorities for ensuring better elder care for Canada's seniors? In five seconds or less. <laughs> <laughs> I think, Andre, you're absolutely correct with, you know, we now need to move into action. And um, I don't know, two or three years ago, I wrote the Groundhog Day uh, and, and, we just keep repeating the same thing again and again with um, deeply engraved ageism is what I think is a lot of the problem. When I really looked at ageism is how we think, how we feel, and how we act. And Andre, when you talk about all that has happened, it certainly suggests to me that the big problem is ageism. And the starting point is to turn that around and to say, as a Canadian society, we're not putting up with this anymore. And it's because it's not that seniors are them and this is us. We are all the same. We're all aging. 
So in, in my mind, the first step is uh, a shift in not just in healthcare, but everyone to say as a Canadian society, how do we want to live? And how do we want to respect people? And how do we want to die? That's the first starting point. I think with the aging population in healthcare, it, it has done this shift. And I think Andre, you spoke well about the whole limitation of our Medicare system, which is obsessed with hospitals and acute care and hasn't figured out that unless we fix who's going into hospitals and who's leaving hospitals and where they go, we'll never actually have an effective system, both in hospitals and in the community and in long-term care. But, you know, in, in certainly sort of what's the biggest thing, the starting point in my mind is critical. And we have to begin to say the preference for people and not just seniors and not just aging, the preference for people is to remain in their communities and in their homes. And then the next piece is to move into actionable activity with policy and funding that provides the supports and the choices and the results where people are actually there first and foremost. And then the rest of the system, the long-term care, beds, the hospitals, will all make sense. The starting point has been backwards for decades. That sounds like an easy solution, but I think if we get moving and move into some true actionable activity, which means fund it differently, which means create policies that are different, which means, quite frankly, right now, a social movement that screams our heads off and says, no, we're not doing this anymore. All of the above will get it to change. Thanks for that, Andre. So when we think about um, these shifts, um, part of what can kind of ground that policy are some principles. And one of those principles that I think is so fundamental is what is the proper role of institutional long-term care or even more home-like long-term care? But, but, but what is its appropriate role within a system? I think its role is to take care of people who can't otherwise be taken care of in the community. But, you know, we, we undersell ourselves. We can do a lot more in the community. Uh, you know, I said earlier, it shouldn't be the default setting. So Shirley's perfectly right. We have it backwards. Uh, it should be a last resort. People who need 24-7 care. Uh, people like my dad who had advanced dementia, who wandered, you know, who had to be looked over 24-7. That's appropriate for 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 this institutional setting. But institutions don't have to be institutions. They can be homes as well. You know, they can have gardens and uh, access to the outdoors and you should be able to eat when you want and get up when you want. They should actually be homes. So it's not just the physical infrastructure, but it's the philosophy. Uh, we, you know, we just uh, infantilize uh, our seniors and we treat them like we treat them like prisoners. You alluded to the history before, and that's the history of this sector as it came up through the, the penal system. Uh, people who, you know, we didn't know where else to put them. We stuck them in these homes. And 400 years later, unfortunately, we still have the same attitude about that. You know, what's really unfortunate, Jody, is there's been a lot of um, review looking at the actual, actual um, population of people in long-term care homes. And several of them, 
could in fact have and remained in the community where they wanted to be from uh, what their preference was. And when we've heard anything from one in nine to one in four, so think about it, if we really could realize the potential of home care and the community resources, then actually our projection of how many beds we need and all of that or, you know, calculation could be very, very different if we were keeping people even more in the community where they want to be and, and really delaying, as Andre said, to long-term care facilities and make them actually strong and robust and with the complexity and care that's required um, and really create a very different community system than where everybody is now would be improved remarkably. To say nothing of how many seniors are actually in acute care beds when they could be discharged much faster into the community or never brought in in the first place, potentially. And that's why I think if we could actually get the potential of, of the community working differently, ironically, the hospitals would be richer and stronger and long-term care facilities would be more ro robust in meeting the needs of people. And we have to shift it around now. Uh, we have a question from Susan Hayes, and I actually want to put it to both of you, but surely I'll ask you to go first. So in terms of thinking about uh, a system that's actually caring for the right patients at the right time, that, as you point out, Shirley, that's, you know, getting folks out of hospital who don't really need hospital care, keeping people out of long-term care who don't really need that kind of care and can more safely and pleasurably uh, age in place. From the kind of the rollout and the management of that kind of shift, how do we ensure that one sector doesn't feel like it's losing money while we kind of execute the, this shift? And there's so much that needs to be done in long-term care, yet so much needs to be invested to stand up home care uh, sufficiently. How do we make sure that it doesn't appear we're, we're you know, investing in one sector at the expense of another? Yeah, it's a great, great question. And um, with what, 30, 30 years where we have not properly invested in what needs to happen for, for Canadians in general, um, right now, I'm not sure we're doing a good job for aging Canadians anywhere, whether they're in the hospital, whether they're living at home with no care, whether they're living at home with home care, or whether they're living in a long-term care facility. So that's where I, I, I start the conversation with sort of funding and positioning to say, you know what, we're not doing this well anyway. I think um, there has to be, and we're seeing it certainly um, in other countries, um, United States has put 400 billion into home care and into the community to know they've got to make the pie bigger, definitely. Australia is another one that just came out with an aging report, again, putting significant dollars in the pie of services. But the bigger thing is the shift where we now have 90%, as we know, roughly 80 to 90% in an institutional type focus and 10, 20 in the community compared to the countries that have been successful with an aging population, it's anywhere from 35 to 40%. So the reality is we have 30 years of uh, an environment that's been resource poor. 
we have seniors not being cared for anywhere. So the net net from a funding point of view, and, and I've been looking at this, are there enough resources and we're not using them well, so maybe we don't need new resources. I'm now at a point with the, the demographics changing and in particular with COVID where we're going to have the need to make up for surgeries and interventions that have been put on hold. The pie needs to get bigger, but the worst thing is if we do not shift the policy and those dollars in an environment that actually gives people in the community less about medical care and less about eligibility and actually open it up in a very different way. Because we've seen, the last thing I want to see is another healthcare accord that, that you know, puts $11 billion into home care for the next 10 years, and we've not made a dent anywhere in where Canadians are saying, I feel so comfortable that I'm going to be able to remain at home, and this is an amazing country that's done this for us. So we want to make sure the funding is shifted. There needs to be more money, and we really have to create policies that go back to what I started, the starting point being what are Canadian citizens wanting? What is their preference? In addition to what are their care needs, what is their preference, and then how and get into actionable activity to take care of them. And most importantly, an empowered workforce that doesn't have layers and layers and layers. An empowered, talented, respected workforce. Because not only have we had ageism in the structures for seniors, the workforce in these areas outside of the acute care hospital and that whole orientation, they've been undervalued too. So it's a perfect storm that we need to change around and get the sun to shine. So I'm just going to repeat. So I wrote down three things. So new priorities. So the, that, that shift in, in care and the, and Canadians preferences being at the center of the definition of those priorities more money, and an empowered workforce. Can all this happen at a provincial level, Andre, or do we need uh, the feds to play here too? I, everybody has to play a part. You know, we, uh, there's a role for the federal government, for the provinces, for there's lots of municipal uh, uh, care provided in this sector. But I think the, that initial question, I think, uh, included uh, really pointed us to the fundamental problem is we have this notion that we have all these silos. So, oh, you know, when we start talking about, well, if we give more to home care, long-term care is going to lose. That's the wrong attitude. The attitude is the money should follow the person. Uh, surely use the word, you know, the dirty word of health care choice. People should actually have choice of how they want to be cared for. So I, I you know, if I'm a 85-year-old person with dementia. I should be able to decide, uh, here's how much uh, I want to stay at home. And if I don't, I can go to a, an institution and here's, the, here's what it costs and here's what the system should spend. Uh, I think we do need more money, but uh, only because we've neglected elders for decades now. But I don't think money is, is the barrier. We have come, there are many countries that do this much better than Canada. They don't have, they're not overwhelmed by their health care costs. On the contrary, they have lower health care costs overall. 
all because they actually do have systems. You know, if you, this is not, none of this can be fixed in isolation. Right? We have to have good, strong primary care. And once you have that, you prevent people from getting sick and then you use fewer hospitals, less home care, et cetera. It's all, it's all connected. To me, the, the worst thing that could happen out of COVID is what I'm seeing happening is seeing governments just say, we're going to build more beds. We're going to do, we have a failed system, so we're going to do more of it. We're going to multiply our failures. And that's what we've done for many decades. And I, that's what needs to stop. There has to be this break and say, we're going to do things fundamentally differently. And I think the starting point for that is, is what Shirley said, is to empower individuals and families and give them some choice and allow them to, to help the system uh, change. You know, we know baby boomers, uh, they've changed the world. Uh, after the Second World War, we became really uh, obsessed almost with caring for children. We rebuilt our education system, our cities, you name it. Everything has changed because of the boomers. And now is the time to change this part of the equation now that boomers are older. And that doesn't mean neglecting others, their kids and that, but it just means catching up and, and making the necessary changes that reflect our demographic realities. When the boat's going in the wrong direction, the solution isn't to row faster. <laughs> um, a great question from Jennifer Ellis that really picks up on your point, Andre, and I'll ask Shirley to, uh, to go first on this one. Do we need to get rid of separate ministries for long-term care and, uh, and having a separate one uh, for health? Uh, do, do we need to have a singular point of political accountability and a more joined bureaucracy focused on this shift? Again, it's another great question, but again, we typically move to structure versus what are we really trying to do? And then, and then quite frankly, I think any structure will work if we're clear about you know, what we're actually trying to accomplish. I know some countries have, have collapsed and made everything sort of an aging phenomena. Um, you know, others have, you know, put it into, uh, you know, again, sort of community and then acute. Uh, I don't think there's a, a magic solution with that. But many times we don't think about what are we actually trying to accomplish in the big picture, first and foremost, and get really hung up on structure and the, the bureaucratic component of things. Um, you know, I, I think, too, that um, over time, we're going to have to sort out with, with the aging population. And, Andre, you spoke about this. Typically, we've looked at the situation from a remit to health care. And then that right away moves us into older people are going to get sick. They're going to need health care. So, therefore, their health, they're going to burden the system. And on we go. Versus if we look at this as a broader phenomena where housing is going to play a very important role, where uh, social security with inflation where we're at and pensions, uh, you know, as we know, money and how you live impacts health more than anything. And then lastly, surprisingly, the healthcare piece of it. That's why sometimes I do think we maybe need to be looking at this with a broader lens and, and determine how we bring in these components that, that impact how Canadians will age well. But I think it's important we don't get, we get typically over the years hung up on the structures in, in every province and at every level. And I just think 
we need to learn, I'd actually say, let's, let's move into some actionable activity and worry about where and how it fits after the fact. I, I only wish I could look at something and say, wow, they were way ahead of their time. What happened? I, I just only wish that that should be a KPI that we look at. You know, how far ahead are we to be doing wild and crazy things that would maybe make a change? And that's the kind of shift and orientation and social innovation that's needed for Canadians to age well. So, I mean, that's a long answer, but it's, it's a big question because as we do know, structures reinforce the policy and reinforce the funding. So it is a very important question. I just wish I knew the perfect answer to it. Yeah, I do think it is a really important question too. I kind of obsess about this. I think almost all problems in Canadian healthcare are structural and administrative. Like uh, Shirley said, this and it's not a formula here, but I think one of the problems with it, the way elders are cared for is that it's an intersection of many things, right? It's an intersection of social policy, health policy, housing, uh, et cetera, uh, municipal. So it's everybody's responsibility, therefore it's nobody's responsibility. So I'm in the book, I say I'm a fan of having a minister of elders or whatever you want to, seniors, whatever you want to call it, uh, because I think it brings together all these elements. But it's important that that minister have power. You know, we have ministers, we've had ministers of seniors in the past, and they're essentially these the go get the muffins before the meeting ministers, I call them, you know, the junior ministers who have no power. And we see that with the minister of long-term care in some provinces. We have the behemoth of the ministry of health. Oh, and you have this other person, long-term care. They don't have any power. They just have blame. So I, I think the structure is important, but it's also, you have to put the power and you have to give people the, the responsibilities to, to fix things. So that matters. I think the other administrative issue, I'm a big fan of having seniors advocates. Uh, British Columbia has a seniors advocate, Isabel McKenzie. I think she's had a tremendous impact on improving care. Uh, every province should have that the way they have child advocates. Uh, there should absolutely be advocates for, for elders. So there are a lot of structural issues that we can take care of. But the more fundamental one is uh, the whole structure of our healthcare system is hospital focused, right? We are, our whole system revolves around hospitals. And until we break that, until we spread the power around, nothing is ultimately going to get fixed. We're just going to see, you know, to me, one of the big problems in home care is that most home care is just an extension of hospitals. It's, let's just get people out of bed sooner, provide short-term care. We don't really think about this providing chronic long-term uh, support for people in the home. That's almost an afterthought. And as Shirley knows all too well, it's almost impossible to get funding for that. There's all kinds of uh, arbitrary caps and, and limits, et cetera. So we, we have to fix some pretty fundamental things about the structure. So, David Naylor, he's written uh, many reports, but one that, but uh, one of the recommendations I want to bring up that uh, he has made is the scaling of positive innovations, or even just good practices. <laughs> you know, like we don't we don't have to use the I word; it could just be like a good old fashioned good practice. Are the what are the practices that we could see scaled um, that could uh, demonstrably make a positive difference. Uh, Shirley, I'll, I'll turn to you first. Yes, there, you know, we have endless, um, I think, innovative and social innovative best practices and changes. I, I, I can speak to the home care 
space where um, a lot of the thinking has been to, in essence, and it goes back to empowering the, the frontline staff and to actually give them less rules and more freedom to customize the kinds of care and service that people need in their home. And, and we right away get into um, complicating that, that expression that I just made. In other words, we put a lot of rules and we put a lot of standards and we put a lot of pathways and we put up, you know, everything that's almost an oxymoron to what I just said to allow for flexibility, customization. Um, I think part of the problem, you're absolutely right, was scaling, because we, we and many um, home care organizations and associations and groups have come up with uh, just phenomenal sort of new approaches that truly meet individuals' needs, families' needs, a lot of caregiver innovations to do things differently. But without the right policy constructs to have those things take hold. And quite frankly, without enough funding and ongoing funding and an environment that allows that to scale, it's been very, very challenging. And we go back to a lot of the structure is reinforcing status quo. And many of these new approaches change the process of care the work process that then impacts what you really need and staffing and resources. So there are a lot of what I would call business models that need to change, work process that needs to change, and an environment that we're open to the heavy lifting that needs to take place with change in addition to the funding to support it. So it is not that we're lacking in any of the technology or bright minds to make this happen. So again, I go, we don't need any other reports to tell us what needs to be done here, but to figure out the environments that allow for scaling and to figure out how we play those out, whether it's in value-based procurement in a very different way, um, if it's in a whole different approach to, to get things up to sort of a, an upscale of things, or you know, what are the enablers to allow that change to happen, whether there are labor issues, whether there are technology issues, etc. That is where the heavy lifting never takes place. It's easy to experiment and come up with amazing models. And, um, you know, SE, as I say, many other home care companies are, are brilliant with what we're trying to do. But it's we get it's a complete roadblock to give it life, and as you said, Andre, to give our values life, we actually have to give life to the brilliance of actually providers and our talent that we actually um, I don't know if it's conscious or unconsciously we suppress. Yes, we've kind of created we've turned home care into a swim lane task based system instead of a place for solutions for people to, to stay home. It's, uh, I, I, I have bruises on my forehead uh, over, over that one. Uh, well, and, and you're right, because I think we created what is more of a rigid medical model of and, and pathway and rigidity, and we kind of forgot we're implementing this 
in the lives of the people and in their homes. And what I've always said, um, you know, years ago as a, as a visiting nurse, once I knew one family in one home, that's exactly what I knew. That one family and that one home and had to modify and adapt because that's the way I was meeting their needs and preferences. Whereas other areas of our healthcare system where it is controlled, the hospital room's controlled, the bed is controlled, the washroom is controlled. It is a different pattern of activity that needs to change. So consequently, the policies and the enablers and the funding need to be very different. And you're right, Andre, we've been fixated with more of a post-acute home care program versus more of a how, and I wouldn't even call it a chronic or at home, a longer life care intervention for people who are living in their homes and in the community. And you notice that's very different language than anything we talk about in the healthcare system. So true. Well, I think this is a this is a really important issue that Dr. Naylor, he's brilliant. He brings this up. We have to do what we do well. We have to do more of it. And, you know, I was very critical in my opening remarks, but there's lots of good care in Canada. There's excellent home care agencies like St. Eliz and many others. There's great long-term care homes. And we just have to copy the ones that do it well and stop rewarding mediocrity and not rocking the boat. We don't value innovation. We, we punish it. Uh, to come back to Shirley's point, I think is really, really key is to empower staff. I'll give you an anecdote. I, I visited an Ontario long-term care facility. This was before COVID. They showed me a list. They have 91 pages of regulations, all kind of everything under the sun that they have to do, check boxes. There's not one thing in there that said, are residents happy? Do they think the quality of life is good? They did. We don't ask the right questions. So earlier, I visit a long-term care home in Copenhagen, in Denmark. You ask them, where, is your, where are your regulations? They say, our regulation is, is a patient happy and well cared for? That's the job of the staff. You don't need a lot of bureaucracy. A lot of it, a lot of this, I think, is we need to get out of the way and let organizations that do things well do them and reward them for it and don't reward those who do it badly. So I think the one thing, you know, this can be a very depressing topic to write about, but what really makes me hopeful is that is this is very fact that we know every problem, we know every solution, we've solved every problem. You know, we have, uh, I, uh, my last chapter of my book is about uh, Sunnybrook Veterans Centre, a fabulous long-term care facility for, for veterans. Why don't we have, this is a publicly funded institution. If every home was Sunnybrook, we would not have had a single dead person during COVID. That's the reality. That's the, we have to set the bar a lot higher. We have to demand more and we have to have the expectation that we're going to have home care that's as good as in Norway and in Denmark, uh, long-term care that's as good as anywhere in the world. That's, that's the goal we have to have. We have to stop settling for mediocrity. I shared this anecdote with Shirley earlier. Um, my mom is now since passed, but um, before she died, she had an ankle injury and she or an, an ankle wound, and uh, she had it for about a year. And um, uh, and my mom lived in a different city than me, um, so I didn't see her every day. Um, but in talking with her, she told me that after like a year at least of it just getting worse, it was starting to get better. And I was like, wow, that's amazing. So 
Uh, next time I came down, uh, I asked her when her home care was, was going to come and she let me know and the nurse came. And so I walked her out to the car and I asked her, I'm like, what are you doing? That's turning the situation around. And she hummed and she hawed and she really resisted. And I was like, look, I, I'm not trying to get you in trouble or anything. Like, like I, I just want to say thank you. And I'm just curious, like, like what, what, what if my mom gets a different nurse and it's not you? Like, how do I ensure that the same thing keeps going? Well, the answer was, was that she was giving my mother an extra visit on her way home at the end of the day. And that's why the wound was improving. She was just giving her a bit more care because she saw that she needed more care. And the system was an obstacle to doing that. So she just did it on her own. The system has to be an enabler. It can't be an obstacle to good care. And I think all these things that you mentioned are those um, are, are just obstacles. So that's part of the reorientation uh, as well that, that you both have spoken so eloquently about. There's a, there's no family in Canada who can afford it that doesn't supplement care. Uh, my family did it. Uh, one of the perversities to me is we provide a lot of home care in long-term care facilities because people just don't get enough hands-on care. They hire caregivers to come in. Uh, th that has to tell us something. We just don't provide the basics. You know, we need these basic long-term care standards. You're going to be insured four hours a day, whether you're at home or an institution. That That's one of the starting points is to get these standards in place and to fund them. Yeah, I've always found it so interesting in, the, in, in, in a, not so much the home care space, but just in the care space that we would never tolerate um, if you went into the hospital and, and said, well, we're going to actually put you on a wait list now. And, you know, we'll, we'll let you know when we can bring you in. Or, you know, with treatment modalities or interventions where it's sort of, well, you know, we've run out now, so you're just going to have to wait. Or, or you're actually just going to get half of what you need. And I think we've been pennywise pound foolish with the small percent of resources that do go into the community to worry about any, every you know, nickel, dime, penny, everything that we're doing versus it's like anything else. I think if you open it up and make it much more accessible, you actually end up spending much less. And we would have less need to be controlling it and monitoring it and figuring out the eligibilities again. And if you really could open that up so that people are not worried that they're not going to get the care, but have a starting point of, I know, I know my needs are going to be met here and everything's going to be okay. Then you would have very different, I think, activity and behavior happening. And probably from a, a funding point of view, we'd be using the resources much more effectively. And I, I don't know why we haven't understood that with all of us, when you limit something, we all want it. <laughs> when you make it available, then we give some thought to do we really require it? Do we really, do we have a preference for it? And I don't understand why in healthcare and in particular in the home care and community environment, we haven't shifted that mentality. We don't have to control it and stop it. Actually, I think if we open it up, we'll find that we actually would be using it more effectively. Yeah, home care is the only area where we have arbitrary limits. You know, there's a maximum three hours a day. I often use the analogy, imagine if you're told you, you have cancer, you need 12 chemo treatments, but we're only funding three hours uh, because that's the rule. It's, it's just, a, again, it's an absurdity uh, we, it, that has to be fixed. Yeah. And I mean, Jody, to your example, the nurse is making the extra visit because it's necessary. 
probably she's making other visits because they've been approved and eligible when may not even make sense to be making those visits. And that's where I really go back to let's empower, let's empower the health professionals um, to do what they love to do and to do what they know what to do. And, and I do think it, it, again, some of these statements appear very simple, but in order to, to implement them, it, it's enormously complicated. And that goes back to, I think, too many structures, too many rules. Um, and it also speaks to where maybe outside of the acute care world and even long-term care world, and we really move into the communities and home and primary care, it is a different orientation that we need to understand. And it, why it's different is because we're impacting people's lives. And we need to design that so that they are able to live their life versus other areas where people are going in. And I do think that's some of the problems when we look at structures and rules and bureaucracy that, that has been a misconnect over many years. Well, this is all the time we have for the session. I could keep talking to you both forever. Thank you so much uh, for, for joining us. And I really hope all the listeners um, have found lots of things that they can latch on to, to write to their MPs, MPPs, mayors, uh, counselors, uh, to say that more of the same uh, really is, is such a, a huge uh, disservice to, to people who really deserve our, our respect and care. Um, so thank you so much, Andre. Thank you so much, Shirley. Hello, I'm David Mosscrop. Welcome to Open to Debate. For over a year now, I've been sitting down with guests from the world of academia, journalism, politics, and activism to bring you single-issue current affairs discussions to help make sense of today's politics and policy in Canada, and around the world. You and I are friends. We are longtime friends. So the dynamic might be a little different. We might make jokes. A little more vicious, I was thinking. <laughs> Retaining this left-right distinction where one group's ideas, you know, the ideology is correct and your ideas, are, your ideology is wrong, that's exactly how we continue to talk over a big divide and don't get cohesive action on this problem. I think we need to leave our dogma at the door and then we may be able to sort of force our politicians to do something. I think it gets much more difficult to ask for help the 10th time or the 12th time or yes. the 20th time, especially for the people like you or in worse situations like that really cannot leave their house or do not even have the money or the means to carry out various things. But really what I want is action. Mm. I want people to be engaged. I don't want people to be either panicked or hopeful. I want people to understand that this crisis requires them to do something. And this is a feminist thing, right? Like giving yourself permission to stop with the punishing thoughts of productivity is a radical act of care right now. I think it always has been in capitalism. And I think now we are confronting just how powerful that can be in terms of our mental health. At its core, this podcast is meant to be a space for discussions that are essential to good policy and a healthy democracy. Open to Debate returns this fall. Subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. <laughs>